I'm going to introduce, um, I'm going to transition us into the next part of our service. Uh, very exciting. It is that time of year again, y'all. It's time for MMIQ or my most important question. MMIQ, yes. This is one of our most popular series, um, one of our most popular Sunday rhythms, one that I'm deeply grateful for. So the premise of my most important question is that too often churches ask us to check our doubts at the door, to leave our most important questions behind. But the reality is that we all have very deep questions that we wrestle with throughout our whole lives. And at Christ City, we truly believe that when we wrestle with our biggest questions, it actually deepens our faith. We don't have to be scared of those. One of the most beautiful lines in the Bible is from Mark 9, when the man says to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And I think that captures this paradox of faith. There are things we know, there are things that we cling to, and then there are things that we don't know. Um, And there are things that we may never know. And those two things, somehow we can hold those together in faith. So today, four people in the Christ City community are going to be sharing how they have wrestled through, or in many cases, how they are still wrestling through, um, their most important question of faith right now. For some, this has been like a lingering, multi-season question. Um, for others, today's question is newer. Um, and as we, as we prepare ourselves to be in this space, um, I want to invite you to hold these friends and their experiences well. So I want to invite us into a, into a time where we are um, preparing ourselves to hold space with generosity, with hope, and with truth. So the way this is going to work this morning is um, I'll introduce um, our speakers as they come. Um, we'll have two speakers to start with. Um, and then we will have um, a time of music and reflection after two. And then I'll invite our last two speakers up uh, to finish. Um, so I'm so excited. I hope that um, I hope that just as we prepare to hold these uh, stories, to hold these questions, that um, it's encouraging and challenging to all of us, um, and that the spirit is palpable. So let me introduce. Uh, Our first two speakers this morning, uh, we will have Jewel Osborne Wu will be sharing with us this morning. Uh, She'll be sharing with us via video. Jewel lives with her husband, Andy, and her three kids who, if you don't know them yet, you will soon. Her words, not mine. As a native Native Arlingtonian, she grew up the oldest of four and went to UVA for college and EVMS in Norfolk for medical school. She's currently a practicing family medicine doctor who works in Alexandria for a clinic that serves people regardless of ability to pay. She's been a member of Christ City for over five years. That's Jewel. Our second speaker today um, asked me to read this introduction. I'm not up here today because I do not feel completely safe sharing my story on singleness. I've had experiences at this church and at past churches of unwanted advances, unwanted touching, harassment, and unsolicited pictures. With the support of our church leadership, I felt the best option was for me to share my most important question through Nikki. Very grateful for her voice. So let me pray for us, and um, and we'll get started. God, I thank you uh, just for this community of people. I'm grateful, God, for just the ways that um, you move in new ways, um, the ways that you move in old ways. I ask, Lord, that we would recognize the sacredness of this space this morning. 
and that we would uh, make room even, even now for your spirit to move. We give you these friends and their stories in gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, I'm Jewel, and today I'd like to start off with a story. So I was maybe eight years old, and I was on the schoolyard, and the trio of kids who happened to find my appearance hilarious and sought to tease me every moment they got, they finally had their chance. Now, I don't know why, but we were the only ones on the schoolyard, and I just remember the fear as I was running away from them. Uh, I was running up to the highest point on the playground while I heard them yelling behind me, taunting, saying, Hey, shorty do up and four eyes, why you got four eyes? And I remember I tripped and I fell face down, slicing my nose on my plastic frame of my glasses. And I quickly turned to face my assailants. The blood on my face must have been quite a bit because they ran back inside spooked, leaving me behind in tears, leaving me behind to think, why was I made to feel bad because of how I looked? My experience being bullied in elementary school uh, sparked my lifelong struggle with my most important question, which is how can I be content with how I look? My displeasure with my appearance started at a young age and the bullying certainly did not help. Uh, from kindergarten through fifth grade, I was always the youngest and smallest in my class. I was one of the few children with glasses and starting in the second grade. And, and this made me feel really self-conscious and it's had such a lasting impact that to this day, I don't really leave my house with my glasses on. I think those early days of being teased really served to start a snowball effect of a, my low self-esteem. And that snowball kind of exploded when I was in medical school planning for my wedding. So I did wedding planning in the middle of medical school, not the best time to do it at all. Um, the stress of medical school alone is unfathomable. And fortunately, my mom was helping me with a lot of the logistics and buying my dress was easy. I was able to choose the first day I went shopping. But um, unfortunately, the rest of me, I was not content with. I was not happy with my hair, my skin, my face, the color of my skin, how, how I was shaped. In fact, I hated many aspects of how I looked. The skin on my face has always been a source of contention as I've dealt with acne since I was 13. It never ceases, never goes away completely. And at the time of my wedding planning, it was at one of its absolute worst. I had scars everywhere and was mortified as to how I could possibly cover it up. I tried so many different concealers, but I was so sensitive, I would break out or it wouldn't cover it or it looked like I was wearing a mask. And so no matter what, I felt hideous. And I hated mirrors, but I couldn't stop looking at them, hoping that by some miracle, my skin would magically clear in time for my wedding. So to this day, I've used and still use a myriad of creams and potions and lotions and concoctions to keep acne at bay. Um, at the time of my wedding, I was drinking random solutions I found online and trying light boxes that I would sit under for hours at a time, trying to at least ease the scars. I was far from content and upset to the point of being displeased with God for giving me this pain. As for my hair, I had two strikes against me. First, I was born with fragile, very fine 4B hair. When I was wedding planning, I hated my hair and thought it was the worst in the world. 
And for those of you who aren't scholars in the alphanumeric system of hair typing, 4B is second to the most curliest hair pattern in the world, which is 4C. And this Afrotexture hair lends itself to coils, but it also tangles very easily and breaks very easily. And that's, that's why I had hated it at the time. Between white normative society, I grew up in this country where the media has done a wonderful job of making sure that um, it's very clear that whiteness was most desirable, uh, that Afrotype hair was not. And so between the media and my family members insisting that anything but type a, one to four B was beautiful, my hair simply was not. It was not beautiful and it was ugly to me. And I compared myself to others constantly. Since I was a little girl, I would have probably sold my soul to have hair like Princess Jasmine in Aladdin. And that dream could be accomplished with fake hair, but with that, I was stuck between a rock and a hard place because my parents at the time did not believe that fake hair was appropriate in any measure. So while they insisted that I use chemicals to hide my natural hair curl pattern, um, these chemicals were called relaxers. Um, they also insisted that I not use fake hair. And so part of my wedding planning involved trying to figure out how to give myself hair like a Disney princess while also convincing my parents that fake hair was not from the devil. With all this stress in mind, the second and much more painful strike to my hair decided to show up. I started having my first flare of my autoimmune condition called alopecia areata. For those of you who don't know, alopecia areata is when your own immune system starts fighting your hair follicles, causing your hair to fall out, typically in small circular patches. But the disease can progress to um, encompass your entire head, leading to complete baldness. It can also affect your eyebrows and your eyelashes and even your whole body. So at the time, um, I felt I was being cursed with the worst type of hair on earth and in addition to that, the little hair that I did have was falling out in clumps. I remember, I remember feeling small patches of baldness on my scalp and being stunned into silent terror, wondering what it all meant. And finally, in regards to my body, I was not content either. Since I was young, I'd always carried extra weight in my lower belly. And this was such to the extent that when I was older, sometimes people would ask me if I was pregnant when I was not. And I tried eating healthier. Uh, so I felt like I was doing all I could without any change in my body. And this was highly frustrating. So looking at magazines with women with really tiny waists, uh, only aggravated that and getting measured for my wedding dress certainly made me feel terrible. Overall, I was devastated. I would proceed to then compare each fault I perceived I had with others around me. And this only made me feel worse. So much time and money and metaphorical sweat and literal tears were spent on figuring out how I could be happy for my special day. I would remind myself that my wonderful future husband loved me just the way I was. Um, and that was true, but unfortunately that was not enough for me because I had spent my entire life around countless girls and women who made me feel inferior in some way or other in regards to how I looked in regards to my appearance and in getting ready for my wedding, I couldn't even manage to make myself feel content or feel beautiful. At the time, I was also undergoing a spiritual transformation from being a lukewarm, largely cultural Christian to a more passionate believer. I was just getting into the routine of praying and many of my prayers 
centered around my appearance. In fact, the vast majority of it did. I would ask questions of God, such as, God, why did you make my skin brown? Or why can't my hair stop falling out? And why did you invent acne, God? I would bargain and plead, listing all of my grievances and waiting for a response and receiving none. Or so I thought. Around this time, I'd been being discipled by one of my best friends, and somehow I was given a book by Beth Moore. I don't remember what book it was, or even if I liked it. And I don't even remember much about who Beth Moore is, but I, and I'm sorry if that's blasphemy, but I must have thought she was onto something because then I bought another book of hers. That book was called So Long Insecurity, You Have Been a Bad Friend to Us. I still have it. I read the book in less than two days, devouring every single word. I spent an entire afternoon alone on the, my living room floor with tears pouring out of my eyes as I read a nearly 10-page prayer found in the middle of her book. Uh, this prayer was in the form of a petition, and since I still have the book, I was able to organize it and consolidate it into a shorter excerpt, which I would like to read to you today. Dear God, I come to you this moment because I need some things only you can give me. I need restoration, Lord. I need my dignity back. You alone know what insecurity has cost me, what trouble, even torment, has caused me. I'm sick of sulking. You have not given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Grant me a supernatural confidence that I am safe with you and loved by you. Forgive me for thinking pitifully little of the person you have made me. In your name, I release all the shame that has come from self-inflicted insecurity. I give you my whole heart. Touch every broken and wounded place with your healing hand. You knew what you were doing when you formed me. Help me to stop using a person as my mirror and start seeing myself as you alone see me. God, I thank you for all you have done. I come now asking, please restore to my soul all that insecurity has stolen from me. Cover me. Transform what drives me. Clothe me with strength and dignity. Make me the kind of woman a little girl could follow to dignity and security. Let this reverberate into every corner of my life, and today I receive my dignity back. No one and nothing can take it from me because you are the one who gave it. Empower me to claim my dignity back and hang on to it with all my might. Amen. So after reading that prayer, I'd like to say that all of my insecurities vanished, but they did not. I needed more time to meditate and ruminate on those words and the rest of what I learned from that book and others around me. But I can say that everything about my wedding day was perfect. Everything was perfect. And how I got to that point of joy must have involved thoughts that went along the lines of this. I must have told myself things like, it's okay. Don't let these insecurities destroy you and take your joy. You are God. You are who God made you to be. Just lean into that and count your blessings. So since I read that prayer uh, over a decade ago, I've read and reread that 10-page petition many times. My mantra is Proverbs 31, 24. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. I still struggle with insecurities and frustrations. Reflecting on the fact that God is my source for my dignity and strength is how I remind myself of how to be content with how I look. During harder, more stressful times, I forget this truth and I wallow in despair, frustration, and anger. 
which only serves to make things worse because stress is a trigger for my alopecia. I'm currently trying to recover from one of those seasons, as we all are with this pandemic. And I am I'm so grateful, though. I'm so grateful to all of you for being here to listen to my story, listen to my question. In doing so, keep Proverbs 31, 24 close to my heart. Thank you. Good morning. When I was asked to read this MMIQ about singleness, um, I was like, this, this is very important. Um, this is important to our church and to the single people. Um, and so I am honored to read this on behalf of the awesome person that wrote these words. All right. Society, friends, family, pop culture, And even the Bible puts emphasis on being married. But why is there so much pressure to not be single, to have a partner and get married? Having a life partner is a beautiful gift, but being single should also be seen as a beautiful gift. I think God wants us to enjoy the treasures he has in store, trust his timing, meet new people, make friendships, explore the world, volunteer, I feel loved and whole by God, but I do not always feel enough to others being single. I wonder if people see me as enough or as a whole person if I'm single. I get constant questions from people. Are you dating? Do you have a boyfriend? How are you single? Sometimes these questions come before asking me anything else, asking about any of my other activities or interests, constantly being ask about my dating status, it does take a toll. I recognize these questions come from a good place and someone taking interest in starting a conversation, but it doesn't make me feel seen or known. I think it's important to recognize most of the time, talking about dating is usually always heterosexual. People always assume the person that you're interested in is the opposite gender. That assumption does not create a safe, inclusive environment or conversation. In addition to not feeling enough, I do not always feel safe. I am constantly aware of my surroundings. I am aware of who I talk to, the information I share, when a guy offers to pick me up or walk me home. It can be the kindest gesture, but it's been instilled to always be cautious. When talking to a man who makes me uncomfortable, the back of my mind reminds me to smile, be cordial. I am afraid that if I am not pleasant, they may do something aggressive. I have felt, I have felt fearful of um, speaking up in certain scenarios. I reported inappropriate behavior and the resolutions have been that my name and identity have been shared. And another time anonymously reporting an incident where the man by default knew it came from me. These interactions have occurred at work and at church, places I thought I'd be protected. After experiences like that, it creates guards and it's hard to have faith people won't take advantage of you for being a single woman. I grew up in a single parent household and my family attended church regularly. 
My mom was a part of several ministries where she met some great people that I still have fond memories of. I also have memories of my mom being harassed by a man in a church parking lot. I remember no one coming in. I remember no one coming to her aid. I don't remember anyone from church supporting my mom after the incident. I always felt safe with my mom. She protected me. But now looking back as a single adult, I wonder how many times my mother did not feel safe. Going to weddings brings up a lot of feelings of not feeling like enough being single. It is always exciting to see your closest friends get married and celebrate their love, but there is a part of me that always asks myself, will that be me someday? Or will I meet someone soon? If I were completely content being single, would I still have those thoughts? There are so many things to look forward to in life, like an exciting upcoming trip, going to a concert, a new job, but those seem tangible. Potentially meeting a good life partner is what fairy tales are all about. But in real life, it's made to be a goal. And if you don't meet that goal, then what? Being single is a failure? There's also a pressure to give dates more chances and get to know someone. But we don't encourage others to trust the Holy Spirit in our feelings. That's a word. That pressure makes me feel like I should lower my intuition and sometimes my standards to meet this goal of having a partner. This goal of having a partner just feels like step one of many. I can't have a family unless I have someone to, and get married. What if I choose to be single and have a family of my own, choosing to adopt my own or choosing to have in vitro? Would others view that family as being incomplete without a father? I really want y'all to hear this part. This is good. God has his own plans for each one of us. God has his own timing. It is important to remind myself of that. Above what the world tells me, God loves me and sees me perfectly. He knows my heart and has placed desires for a reason. May not be the reasons I envisioned for myself, but that's where my faith is tested, to trust God. To know in my emptiness and doubts, he is there. He has people in my life to support me and love me. Those people to remind me I am not alone. I may always wonder if others see me as enough or whole. It may be a constant question. I may learn to care less of what others think Learn to tune out the outside noise. I can keep my focus on what I know best and keep sharing with people who love me most of my worries. I can ask my church to say an extra prayer for those that are single and maybe feeling similar to me. And I'll end with this verse. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure trials for a little while. Thank you. I'd like to introduce our next two speakers this morning. Uh, Betty Mulumba Brown 
is a Congolese-American immigrant who was raised in the 757, if you know, you know. She moved to the D.C. area in 2012 and has been attending CCC since 2015. She currently lives in Southeast D.C. with her husband, Eric, and is an aunt to 13 beautiful nieces and nephews and counting. She's a Salesforce nerd by day and a plant, yoga, and chick flick, chick flick enthusiast by night. We'll also hear from Nate Schultz. Nate has been connected to Christ City since its very beginnings. Some of the first prayer meetings for what would become CCC took place in his and his wife Sarah's living room. After departing D.C. and spending a few years in Denver, they moved their family back to the DMV in 2018, in part because of their love for CCC. He currently serves as an elder here at the church. Nate works at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and is passionate about facilitating opportunity and equity through housing. He and Sarah have three daughters, Annabelle, Isabel, and Emberlyn, and they live in Alexandria with their dog, Brutus. So I'd like to invite Betty up. Good morning, church. All right, so I'm Betty, um, and my most important question this morning is, when will the other shoe drop? So some of you may know that my husband, Eric, and I bought a house last summer. What were we thinking, you might ask? I don't know. House hunting in D.C. in the middle of a pandemic is a traumatic experience that we may never recover from. But we are grateful to God to have found um, a house that has met and will meet so many of our needs in this next season of our lives. So a few months after the purchase, though, after the initial adrenaline rush and excitement that came with imagining all the possibilities of a new space, I started to feel slightly uneasy um, when I thought about the house. And I was honestly surprised and had no idea where it was coming from. After some prayer and journaling, I still couldn't quite put my finger on it. I decided to bring it up to my therapist in one of our sessions. So my therapist does this thing where she asks a seemingly unrelated question as a response to something I've said. And my reaction is always something like, I have no idea where um, where you're going with this. But she almost always has a reason. So in this case... After I brought up how I was feeling about her purchase, she asked me what I thought was a completely unrelated question. I don't even remember what the question was, but it was spot on, and it actually triggered a memory in my childhood that I had not thought about in ages. So it was a sunny Saturday afternoon, and my parents and siblings and I had just spent a lazy day at the Newport News Park, shout out to the 757, Um, It was one of those perfect summer days, complete with deep belly laughs. You know, the ones that come out only when you're, like, really comfortable with people. I couldn't have been older than 10 at the time, but I knew that this was one of those days I really needed to cherish. So as we were heading to the parking lot to make our journey back home, my younger sister, Anna, and I decided to race back to the car. With mischievous grins on both of our faces, we... um, we 
inched closer and closer to the car, and I was, like, completely in the lead. Um, so just as I was about to claim my victory, I tripped over myself and completely face-planted onto the pavement. Luckily, my face was mostly okay, but my knees had definitely seen better days. I was in so much pain. And so my mom and oldest sister, who were the closest um, to us, rushed over. They were super concerned. Um, So after helping me back to my feet and soothing me, um, I remember someone reciting a phrase in French that was so often used in my family um, whenever someone was hurting, um, but also, like, more importantly, to discourage mischief. Um, The the phrase um, was... Après la joie vient la tristesse, translated in English as after joy comes sadness or sorrow. It was one of those phrases said with little thought, but often repeated. At the time, I wasn't old enough to grasp the deeper implications of such a phrase, but knew that my family just repeated it when we were hurting. One of the best days I ever had ended in physical injury, And I had subconsciously considered that maybe this phrase and this framing would protect me in the future. So this mindset actually served relatively well for me growing up. It was self-preservation. My family moved from South Africa to the States when I was six and experienced varying levels of poverty growing up as immigrants in a new country. I did have a very warm and loving childhood But growing up without much to go around taught me to anticipate surprises. Once I had paying jobs in high school and college, I felt even more in control because not only could I plan for a variety of financial circumstances, I actually had the ability to do something about most of them. Part of being black, woman, an immigrant in this country and needing to navigate predominantly white homogenous spaces meant learning to anticipate potential threats in my environment. Where was I ever truly safe in the midst of the patriarchy, white supremacy, capitalism, and other systems of power and control? And with whom? It was never a matter of if the other shoe would drop, but always just a matter of when. And as an adult, I've struggled to balance the pain and death present in this world with the joy and signs of life that God provides. From the endless cycle of black death at the hands of the police, to the gun violence epidemic, to the pandemic, to the dismal rates of black maternal mortality in this country, the list goes on and on. It seems like shoes are dropping everywhere. So this brings me back to my virtual therapy session, because COVID. Um, when I was at a loss for why I was feeling this sense of dread after uh, what should have been like a really exciting um, time in my life after our big home purchase. So my therapist's seemingly unrelated question had prompted me to go back in time and draw all of these connections I never knew were there. I was able to connect the dots between my interpretation of the phrase, after joy comes sadness, and the thought patterns um, throughout my childhood, teenage years, and in my my 20s. For most of my life, I unknowingly was very cautious and skeptical of joy, being certain something was always lurking around the corner. I learned that in moments where I did not let myself experience joy, 
uh, or sorry, I've learned that in moments where I did let myself experience joy, I never let my guard down fully. I was always watching, waiting, anticipating, and planning for when the other shoe would ultimately drop. The dread I felt after our home purchase was tightly bound to a belief I had internalized over the years that I did not deserve to fully experience joy. I believed that moments of joy should be experienced, but only at a safe distance, with only one foot in. It was, in fact, um, in moments of joy that I would be the most aware of potential threats um, that could take me out of it. So in the midst of imagining all of the good gifts in store for us in our new home, all the friends and family that would warm the space, all the neighbors we'd meet, and all of the exciting projects we had planned for our space, I had so many what-if questions in the back of my mind. What if both of us lose our jobs and fall behind on our mortgage? What if we made a bad investment and we just don't know it yet? What if we lose the house? These are probably common anxiety-fueled questions that new homeowners feel. But in this moment, I realized that these questions were tied to a deep-seated negative belief that quite literally interrupted and thwarted any joy that I was feeling. It's as if my mind would make up these questions as a defense mechanism so I wouldn't need to experience uh, moments of joy fully. The feelings triggered by these questions prevented me from feeling safe in my own home and ultimately made me feel alone. So this was a huge observation for me. And at this moment in my session, I felt God's presence guiding me, helping me um, peel back the layers so that I could be free. So I want to read a passage from John 16 that um, has been really helpful for me. And it just helps illustrate what God is teaching me about this. John 16, 22 through 24. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These are Jesus' words that he spoke to his disciples before his crucifixion and resurrection. He acknowledges the sorrow that the disciples will feel and doesn't invalidate or question those feelings. But he also brings to light the hope and joy that is to come. And what is so healing for me to hear is that God wants us to look to him and be honest with him about how we're feeling and what we need, what we think we need. He wants us to trust in him. We are not alone, and we're especially not alone in hard, painful, or new seasons. Um, And we can look to God and not the what-ifs or potential threats um, lurking around the corner. God is the way maker. He will provide in whatever way we need. And the joy he gives can't be taken from us. So I'm realizing that the question, when will the other shoe drop, isn't even helpful. Anticipating and planning for uh, all what-if scenarios was a survival technique 
that I had internalized from my past that no longer serves me. Um, and it's a joy stealer. Whether the shoe drops or not, it doesn't change the fact that I am not alone. God is here. I have a tribe sur- uh, surrounding me. Um, and God is my great protector and comforter. It's okay for me to feel pain or sadness when a what-if scenario does happen. I'm human, and part of being human is having the ability and privilege to feel whatever I need to feel in the moment. But what's so important to remember uh, for me is that this doesn't threaten the joy that God has given me. I'm learning that fully experiencing and not invalidating pain or sorrow also actually enhances the joy that I feel in the long term. So I want to close by saying that I'd be lying if I figured it all out uh, and I you know, no longer ask myself this question. Uh, that's not true. Um, unlearning this framing is part of my story, and it is a process. But I know that there's grace, that God sees me, and that joy is ultimately eternal, no matter, what, uh, no matter the circumstance. Thank you. Well, good morning. Um, <clears throat> long-time listener, first-time caller to MMIQ, so pretty excited about this. Um, So when I was about 10 years old and a diligent student in Mrs. Wells' Sunday school class at Grace Bible Church in Dodge City, Kansas, Mrs. Wells shared with us that when one was underlining something in their Bible, they needed to be sure to use a ruler or some other kind of straight edge um, because your lines needed to be straight. Um, Moreover, you also needed to be cognizant of the fact that you should never use a pen because that might bleed onto the page. So I took you know, dutifully took mental note of this as these were important instructions in terms of how to live faithfully as a follower of Christ. (laughs) Because the the rules were important, um, and my church spent a lot of time focused on the rules because we wanted to make sure we were doing it right. My family was deeply devout. We were Sunday morning and evening, Tuesday night Awana, Wednesday night Bible study kind of people. Um, My dad was an elder in the church and a pillar in the community. Uh, My mom taught Sunday school, she led women's Bible studies, and she made the communion bread every Saturday night for the following Sunday's worship service. They were tremendously influential people, and I am so grateful for who they are and all that they taught me. They genuinely loved God and loved people really well. And I knew that they loved me, but I also felt that they really loved me when I was doing it right. When I was getting straight A's in school or excelling at memorizing scripture or winning spelling bee competitions or being elected to student government or winning awards and honors, I began to believe that while they always loved me, they might just love me more when I was performing well. This seemed to further affirm what I had come to believe as a young child in church, that to be loved, really loved, you had to do it right. And it was clear to me that God felt this way as well. I mean, I knew my soul was saved because I would prayed the prayer, so he had to let me into heaven. Um, so we had that going for me. But, um, but I was not at all sure if God actually loved me. Or did God just tolerate me? Was God just watching my every move and awarding gold stars and demerits and withholding love until the gold stars sufficiently outweighed the demerits? 
my most important question was, will it ever be enough? Will I ever do or be enough to be worthy? In God's eyes, in my parents' eyes, in the eyes of everyone around me. And this question of whether I could ever do or be enough to be worthy of love would influence my ambitions, my decisions, my behaviors and beliefs for years to come. It would taint so many of the good and righteous things that I did and keep me from so many other good and righteous things that I could have done. All of my striving did yield results, though. It landed me the valedictorian slot at my high school graduation, a full academic scholarship at a university, and an internship in the Secretary of State's office in my home state. Clearly, God and people seemed to think I was at least kind of doing it right. I was also volunteering as a leader in my church's youth group, and I was really moved by the opportunity to love those kids and introduce them to God. It was also at that time that I began really talking to God for the first time, moving beyond just a recitation of requests in my prayers, but beginning to really sense God's presence and voice as I prayed. And in the course of those conversations with God, I began to feel as if the Lord was leading me to go into youth ministry. The calling felt real, real enough for me to entertain the idea of leaving behind the plan that I had for my life. But at the same time, there was also this almost unconscious conviction in the recesses of my mind that if you were in full-time ministry, then you might have a shot at moving above okay in God's ranking system, that I might actually move higher than that. So I did what seemed logical and faithful at the time and left behind my full-ride scholarship to take on a boatload of debt to go into that incredibly lucrative trade known as youth ministry. Don't get me wrong, I loved youth ministry. I worked for a gang prevention program in the Denver Public Schools. I was the high school youth pastor at our church. Um, I taught at retreats and spent hours praying with and for young people in our city and strategizing with other youth leaders how to interrupt kids' lives with the gospel. I really enjoyed loving those kids and introducing them to Jesus. I loved it so much that Sarah and I decided we were going to devote our lives to urban ministry. So when she completed college, we set out for Boston as missionaries, working with a local service provider and serving refugees who were resettling in the United States, and also helping a Sierra Leonean church create their first youth group. We were so excited for this work, and we really felt that God had called us to this life. But if I'm honest, in the back of my mind, I was also thinking, man, this has got to be worth some serious gold stars. I mean, we're moving across the country in faith that God's going to provide financially. We're, you know, helping to plant these new churches for resettling refugees. We're helping refugees resettle in the United States. Like, this has got to be worth some serious credit. Maybe this would finally be enough for God to truly love me. But all of our dreams came to naught. Despite our stepping out in faith, the funding never came through. To support our needs, our living situation was miserable. The neighborhood was brutal. And when we decided that we'd give up on our faith-filled attempt to raise support as missionaries and just find jobs, we couldn't find any. So broke, tired, sad, and angry, or at least I was angry, we loaded up a moving truck to head back to Denver. And as would be completely appropriate, as we pull away in the moving truck, we smashed the the side mirror on a telephone pole. It was the perfect ending to this miserable misadventure. But arriving back in Denver, I felt like a failure, and I felt like God had failed me. I mean, look what I had done for him. I took a promising political career and a full-ride scholarship and gave them up to do ministry. 
I devoted my life to ministering to folks living challenging lives in difficult contexts. I put everything on the line in the belief that God had me, that he'd provide. And he didn't. What had I done or not done to deserve this? What more did God want from me? As I sorted my pain and disappointment and sought the Lord's face, God began to show me who he really is. Over time, God showed me that asking if I'll ever do enough to be loved is like asking if I'll ever be tall enough to be my height. It's a ridiculous question. Because God's love is about who God is, not who I am. Richard Rohr writes, The biblical revelation is about awakening, not accomplishing. It is about realization and not performance principles. We cannot get there. We can only be there. But that foundational being in God, for some reason, is too hard to believe and too good to be true. Only the humble can receive it because it affirms more about God than it does about us. I had always thought that it was about me. I thought that I had to earn my way into God's love and everyone else's as well. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells the story of a son who clearly had amassed many more demerits than gold stars. He'd asked for his inheritance while his father was still alive, which was tantamount to wishing his father dead in that culture. And then he took that inheritance and squandered it on what Scripture calls wild living, not exactly gold star behavior. But when he comes to his senses in the depths of his starvation and shame, he returns home. And picking up in verse 20 of Luke 15, we read, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now it's important to realize that no apology had been uttered, no act of contrition, no gold stars had been earned. And yet this father ran to him. Unmerited grace, unquenchable love, delighting in this son of his. Not because of who the son was, but because of who the father was. This, Jesus tells us, is what God's love is like. One of my spiritual heroes, Father Greg Boyle, has said, God is just too busy loving us to have any time left for disappointment. That idea is so appealing to me that God might be too busy delighting in me to have time to award gold stars or demerits. Elsewhere, Father Greg writes, you are exactly who God had in mind when he created you. This, too, is such a revolutionary idea for me and so incredibly freeing, and and I believe it to be true. Now, I wish I could say that I've forever left behind that constricting paradigm of doing it right. On my best days, I think I'm, I'm, I'm doing better. I'm getting closer. On my worst, I can fall back into those old ways of thinking. You know, I'm an Enneagram 3, so on my worst days, I look a certain way. On my best days, I look a different way. Um, But Richard Rohr said that we do not think our way into a new way of living. Rather, we live ourselves into a new ways of thinking. I think that I'm living myself into a new and freer way of of thinking. I think that I'm... And my prayer, I guess, for you all today is that if you struggle with the the idea of a cosmic ranking system where the other shoe is always about to drop and the demerit's going to come. I hope that you'll find some freedom today in my words and that you too will awaken to the reality of God's total and complete love for you. There's no gold star and demerit chart. I don't think Jesus really cares how you underline things in your Bible or if you underline at all. 
He's too busy loving you, delighting in you. After all, you're exactly who he had in mind when he created you. Thanks. Thanks.